Hey everyone, this is 30 Day Trek. I'm your host, Luke Annand, and in this episode, we are covering the seventh episode of the first season of Star Trek Discovery, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. This is the one where, during a party, Michael Burnham and Lieutenant Ash Tyler, the new chief security officer, are called to the bridge to deal with a gormagander, a space whale on the endangered species list of the Federation. But upon bringing it aboard the ship, the gormagander opens its mouth, and out comes Harry Mudd, the legendary con man who we saw earlier in the episode Choose Your Pain, and is here to take control of the ship, sell it to the Klingons, and kill Captain Lorca while he's at it. But after destroying the ship, the episode jumps back in time a half hour, and the episode starts over again at the party. We find out that Harry Mudd has a time crystal, and that he's been in a half hour time loop for over 50 times in order to figure out how to take control of the ship. The only other person who knows they're in a time loop is Paul Stamets, the scientist behind the spore drive, and who, because of the tardigrade DNA compound in his system allows him to exist outside of the loop. The rest of the episode is Stamets trying to get Burnham up to speed as quickly as possible and Burnham in turn having to earn Tyler's trust in order to stop Mud. Doors locked from the inside. Security override isn't functioning. Warning. Critical drive overload in three minutes. Welcome, kiddies. Make yourselves at home. I have. How the hell did you get out of that prison, Mud? You remember my multi-legged friend, Stuart. Well, we performed a feat of magic that would make the most accomplished escape artist blush. Alas, once free, he went his own way. Bugs, no loyalty. Tyler, you know this man. He was my cellmate. Back away from the console. Put your hands in the air. I won't ask you again, Mud. Actually, you will. But before then, would you please tell me how to work these controls? No. I understand that the drive system is what's special about this ship. Back away but or for we the fire. life of me, I can't... Figure out what these contraptions do or what they connect to. Warning, critical drive overload in 60 seconds. Can we just jump ahead to the part where you tell me how to make these systems operational, please? I've got some Klingons on the hook. You might want to hurry. We're getting close to that point where, you know... Computer beam intruder to the bridge. I've created a containment field to protect me on this side of the room. You really think I would forget to take control of the computer? Warning. Critical drive overload. You are mad. No, I'm mud. Now will one of you tell me how to work this damn system? As days go, this is a weird one. Star Trek Discovery, which recently started its fourth season and that I haven't watched yet due to me doing this podcast, is a series that is somewhat controversial. Set 10 years before the original series, this was the first Star Trek series after a 12-year absence from 2005 when Enterprise was cancelled after four years with only the three Kelvin timeline films, Star Trek 09, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond, to quench the fans' thirst for new Star Trek. And personally... I felt that there needed to be a break for Star Trek on TV. From the debut of Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987 to the series finale of Star Trek Enterprise in 2005, there had been new Star Trek for almost every week for 18 years. And as seen with the majority of Enterprise, the franchise needed some serious downtime in order for it to recharge its creative batteries. And with the creation of Viacom CBS All Access, now Paramount+, Plus, the time was right for Star Trek to come back to the small screen. And since the television landscape had changed completely by the time Discovery came around, it's no surprise that the series had a long, arduous, and painful development process with Brian Fuller creating the series and then leaving due to creative differences and two showrunners that followed 
followed after him, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts, also leaving halfway through Season 2, with Michelle Paradise and Alex Kurtzman taking over showrunning duties, and Paradise now being the sole showrunner for Season 3 onward. And while it's nothing new for a Star Trek series to change showrunners and directions over the course of its run, it's more unusual for a Trek series to have the same person behind it from beginning to end, with Discovery, the birthing pains were just more on display than usual. Coming at the literal halfway point of the first season, with its season-long plotline of the Federation-Klingon War and the darker and grittier tone of the series that had fans complaining about then and now, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad is an important episode for many reasons. First off, it was a break for everyone involved with the series to do something fun, and at that point in the show's production, with each episode costing between 6 and $7 million, which was three times the budget of an episode of TNG, they had to do a bottle episode to save costs. And this episode is a fun remix of the TNG episode Cause and Effect with the added element of Harry Mudd, which while seemingly incongruous with the more jovial characterization that Roger Carmel brought to the character in Mudd's Women, I Mud, and Mudd's Passion, for me makes sense. Since this is before TOS, one can see the TOS Mudd as one that has considerably mellowed out. And Rain Wilson as Mud in this episode, as well as an upcoming performance that I'll be discussing later, can be seen as a transition from the more sinister Mud seen in Choose Your Pain to the hairy Mud we know and love from TOS. Well, at least who I love. Like with the Mirror Universe in Section 31, your mileage may vary when it comes to Harcourt Fenton Mud, with the unashamed scoundrel clashing with the optimistic philosophy of the franchise. But I've always liked Harry Mud for being, as the Women at War podcast described him as, Falstaff in space. And since he's always getting his comeuppance at the end of the episode he's in, the franchise can have their cake and eat it too of having a scoundrel without condoning and celebrating him. He's just a fun character. And at this point in the season, we needed a reminder that even though Star Trek is coming back in dark times with a dark plot line and traumatized characters, at the end of the day, Star Trek is fun. It's a franchise that can still have exchanges like, you are mad. No? I'm mud. It's also a franchise that has its characters at the center of its storytelling. One major change from Star Trek of the past to Star Trek of the present was having a focal point main character. In this case, Michael Burnham, the woman whose father was killed in a Klingon raid, mother disappeared, was adopted by Sarek, and raised alongside Spock as his foster sister on Vulcan, which led to her actions in the pilot where she inadvertently starts the Klingon war and in the process mutinied against her captain and mentor Philippa Georgiou. And at this point in the first season, Burnham had gone from disgraced mutineer to science officer aboard the Discovery who was drafted by Captain Lorca. And it was in this episode where we saw a more emotional side to Burnham as she faced one of her biggest challenges yet a party. As mentioned in a previous episode, I love it when a character's personal development directly impacts the plot. And here, Burnham has to finally open up and show a more emotional side in order to save the ship. And I love that the deep dark secret that she tells Paul in order to get her to believe him when the time loop starts over again is that she's never been in love. And his reaction of, I'm so sorry, as well as the scene where Paul tells Michael about how him and his husband Hugh met as they slow dance in the hallway were also good moments for developing Paul beyond the cranky scientist who only spouted exposition about the spore drive. This episode was a favorite of Anthony Rapp for that reason. One criticism that the series got that I understood was that it was the Michael Burnham show and that the remaining bridge crew members had little to no development. And while I agree with that to a certain extent, we still haven't gotten an episode devoted 
Therese, the tactical officer played by Patrick Kwok Chun, I feel that the character work for our cast is there. It's just hard to see because it goes by so fast due to the plot-heavy structure and accelerated pace of the series. But Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad shows that the character development and work that we associate with Star Trek is still there. As for the rest of the episode, the title is another literary reference. In this case, it's from Homer's Iliad in regards to Aphrodite's sash or girdle, a love charm that was given by her to Hera in order to beguile Zeus. Surprisingly, it's only the third longest episode title in the history of the franchise. The second was the earlier Season 1 Discovery episode, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, and the first is still the third season TOS episode, For the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. This was also the first episode since Encounter at Farpoint to not open with a cold open teaser. And you can tell that this was a show that had money to burn, not only with the extensive CG effects or production value, but with the fact that the episode has source music, with Wyclef Jean's We Trying to Stay Alive playing during the party, and Al Green's Love and Happiness during Burnham and Tyler's Slow Dance. I always like to say that the reason that the Klingons from TOS look nothing like they do in the rest of the franchise is the same reason why every alien planet they visit looks like either Malibu or Vasquez Rocks, and why everyone in the 24th century listens to classical music. Budget. So now, the Trek franchise can actually pay for song rights. Join me tomorrow when we cover another episode from Season 1 of Discovery, one that has a moment that I feel answers the question of, is Discovery really Star Trek? Live long and prosper, and also, live well. Live well.